Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the Nascar NBC Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today at Indianapolis Motor Speedway in one of the motorhomes in the driver lot. I am joined by James Hinchcliffe. Hello, hello. James. I'm Thanks well. for being here. Thanks for having me on, man. So I, I know it. podcasts are not foreign to you. This is something that you do in your everyday life. Uh, yeah, it's weird because I still don't know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> I've been hosting podcasts for like three years now, and I still don't, I don't, I don't exactly get it. I don't know what they are, but... It goes well, so we, we keep doing it. Yeah, so we started uh, the Mare on Air uh, a couple years ago. It was kind of a joint podcast slash XM show uh, that played on the IndyCar channel. And it was literally me and the social media coordinator for IndyCar, Brian Simpson, who we nicknamed Buzzkill, uh, was like the <laughs> producer of the show. And we had no format and no idea what it was really about. And we just kind of had a laptop and like a USB mic, and off we went. <laughs> And it slowly grew, and we got permission to buy more expensive stuff. So we got like two mics, which was a big deal. And uh, and then uh, and then that kind of stopped when we got an opportunity to uh, do a show with uh, Castbox, which is a you know podcast hosting app. Uh, they came to us and pitched the idea of a show with with Rossi and I. And Off Track was born, and here we are. And that started earlier this year. You and Alexander Rossi doing your own podcast, correct? Which is called Off Track with Off Hinch track. and Rossi. See, it surprises me. Well, first of all, I got to ask about Buzzkill. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I would want a guy named Buzzkill like running my. I don't have a producer, by the way, but I, I don't know if I would want that as my producer. So, <laughs> so here's the thing, right? <laughs> what I, whatever I listen to, like morning shows that I really like, or even like late night shows, right? There's yes. always that guy, right? That that you kind of like beating up on a little bit, and he's yeah. he's kind of like the sober second thought. You know, he's kind of the voice of reason, and that's 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 a buzzkill to the guy that wants to just do all the outrageous stuff, right? So he he's actually exactly what I need looking out for me because I'll I'll get myself in trouble if I don't okay. have somebody like that. So Buzzkill is reining you in, but he's not keeping you from doing the cool stuff. Correct. Okay. Yeah, right. it's and a perfect balance there. In that case, that might be a good use of Buzzkill. Yeah. Then on a podcast. And he hates it, which makes it better for me. So I, <laughs> that's another reason why it's stuck. That is great. I'm surprised though that you you're, you feel like you're still learning what a podcast is because when I think of you, I think of somebody who maybe was ahead of podcasting and was was doing forms of it before it was even really a medium because I mean you, you've been about promoting yourself as a driver and a personality for long before you became a name yeah it's 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 funny I mean I was I was really lucky Nate I was I was counseled by uh, by a guy named Jim Bowie um, very early in my career that the, the sport was changing. It wasn't just about how good a racing driver you were anymore, and the off-track side of it, the branding side of it, was very important. Right. And and that was literally from my first year of car racing in Formula BMW in 2004. 
and so I've kind of I've kind of always grown up, uh, you know, career wise with that sort of mentality because I was I was coached on it. I, I didn't it didn't take to get to the IndyCar level to learn that, you know, where mm-hmm. some guys didn't get there till then, or they were already here as the shift was happening, and it was really hard for the kind of already established guys to be like, why do I have to do all this extra stuff now? That's not how right. it's been, you know. Uh, so I was fortunate in that sense. And, yeah, we did these, you know, that's how Hinchtown.com was born and the whole mayor of Hinchtown persona and all the rest of it. And I was doing, I guess I guess they're called vlogs now. You know, I would right. sit in front of my laptop and do a little race recap from, you know, my Atlantic races or something. I wish I had known that, you know, vlogging and, like, YouTube was could be, like, an income stream. I would have <laughs> stuck with that because I'd probably be making more on YouTube than I do driving race cars. Yeah, forget but, this IndyCar thing. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of work. I mean, just sitting in front of my laptop, I could do that all day. That's fine. But, yeah, uh, yeah no, I, I was really lucky in that sense. I, I kind of got the I got put on the right path early, and, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's been fun. It's turned out all right. And the guy's name who helped you out, you said his name was Jim. Jim Bowie. Jim Bowie. Okay. Yeah. And who was he? Like a driver manager? Or does some of you matter? He was. So he. W- when I met him, he was the series manager for Formula BMW. Uh, fellow Canadian guy and had a deep marketing background. Had worked with IndyCar teams in marketing and worked f- uh, at Skip Barber for marketing, um, and and got got pegged to be the guy that kind of brought Formula BMW to North America and, and run the series. And after my year there, uh, he actually branched off and started his own marketing company. And I was. I don't want to say Clyde zero zero one, but we, you know we were kind of right at the beginning of that. And right. uh, he subsequently got on to done a lot of other things in motorsports, and he was most recently um, Mazda Speed's uh, marketing kind of guru. Um, but no, he's just just a bright guy, and you know he, he was the first guy. He claims he claims this, and I love him to death, and I'm actually willing to believe this because he's pretty bright. But he claims he was the first guy to like take, but you know they didn't have computers back then, so a sketch of a car. And like draw on a sponsor's logo in a marketing deck, you know the thing, like the renderings that happen, like they're just commonplace now. He was the right. first guy to just take like a, a si- like a profile <laughs> sketch, you know, like a like a, almost like an architectural drawing of an indie car, <laughs> and put a company's logo on the side pod and be like, "This could be you," you know. That's cool. Yeah. Okay, so like he was ahead of his time as a graphic artist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he, a if, he had, if he had stuck to that, you know, <laughs> and a vlogger. Wow. Yeah. Well, good for him. So. This is kind of a difficult question to ask, James, but was like, w- was Jim the first person to say, like, I think you're cool? Like, I think people are going to like you? Because you've got, obviously, this really cool, charming, affable personality, and I think that is what makes you such a popular driver and star. But I was wondering this, like, like who's the person who tells you this is what, I mean, you probably would have gravitated toward anyway, but who, is there, was he the guy who said, look, I, I'm looking at you and I can see things that you, qualities you have and possess that people are really going to glom onto. This is what you should be doing. Because you're cool. Yeah, uh, I don't think he ever called me cool. I don't think, that <laughs> was, I don't think those words ever came out of his mouth, and rightly so. But I think uh, that the big thing was just, you know, it was the appreciation of needing to stand out off track. Yeah. You know, the, the way he described it to me was there are a lot of guys that can drive a race car quickly. Okay? That's no longer a unique ability. And, and we were heading into a time, and, like, obviously we didn't even know 08 was coming yet, but we right. were heading into a time where sponsorship was key. You know, at the time, there was still a split in open wheel, and both series were struggling. This would have been, like, 2004 or 2004, yeah. You know, he was just really kind of harp at home that you've got you've to stand out away from the racetrack because when you're on the race, you're all on the track at the same time. It's hard to watch 20 kids at the same time and get an appreciation for who each one is. And, what I, and you've got to be a spokesperson for all these companies and this, that, and the other. So you've got to be able to stand out. You've got to be a representative. You've got to be whatever. And the, the whole thing that he always said, and it's, it's what I've always preached to anybody that's come up, you know, young aspiring drivers that come up to me and ask the same question, 
it's it's just be yourself, right? It wasn't about, hey, you've got to be cool, or you've got to be funny, or you've got to be whatever it is. Th- this goofy character that you guys see, that's not a character. That's who James Hinchcliffe is. Right. And so what I'm like, you don't have to be funny if that's not who you are. Just figure out what you are and just really own it. Really be that. Because there's a market out there for, for that. There are other people just like you tap into that market, tap into those companies, that sponsorship realm. And so, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't so much like, "Hey, you're funny." That's that's what you should, you know. It's yeah. it's it just just be yourself. Be that's yourself. the best thing you can do. And that, obviously, that makes it a lot easier because you're not having to work to craft some persona. If you something. were trying to phone it in and be something you weren't, man, yeah. our jobs are exhausting enough as it is. <laughs> right. If you had to be on and like you're right. kind of on all the time anyway, but you're on as who you are. If you had to be on as a character, it, forget it. That's like a twenty four seven reality TV show. You know, it'd be terrible. Take me back to 2004. I was I've been covering racing since '96, full time since 2002. So I have conceptual idea of like what '04 was like at the time. I guess Champ Car was still around and it had just barely survived a bankruptcy right. thing. Just and been taken over, I think, by like Jerry and Kevin. And right. And the Indy Racing League was was doing okay, but and you know you just had. Probably at that time, like Andretti and Penske had all come over in the last couple of years. Yeah, Ray Hall had gone over. Yeah, gone over. Yeah. But as you said, in terms of being a driver who stands out, like just talent, it was different from say like the early to mid '90s where drivers were getting rides based solely on. I mean, there's always been ride buying, but so maybe more so on merit back then than where things were in '04, right? Is it kind of a different environment? Well, '04 was interesting because it was the first year of the tobacco ban. Great point. So yeah. that's what neutered motorsport sponsorship. Right. You know, the industry, open wheel especially, was. I mean, I mean, it was the Winston Cup in, in NASCAR, obviously, and and you know, we had we had players, we had cool, we had Marlboro. Right. There was a lot of tobacco money floating around, and we were maybe already at the end of the engine manufacturer era. I, I think you're right. I think 03 yeah. was the last year of Toyota. Right. So now we were all on the Ford Cosworth, so you don't have the big manufacturer money anymore. You don't have the tobacco money anymore. And, you know, the the, the, the case study, and, and this is, so like, so like back in the day, Atlantic drivers used to make a quarter million dollars, you know, in the, in the tobacco, like the player's driver development program. You'd get a quarter million in a full season in Atlantic. Wow. And like that, that was very much not the case in 2004, let me tell you. <laughs> um, Just like a short, I mean, that would have been like late 90s guys were making that yeah, much in Atlanta. Yeah, for sure. You, like, wow. you guys like Lee Bentho. So, like, you know, yeah. as a Canadian, I looked at the players' development program as that's the be-all and end-all. You get into that, your career's set. You know, right. your Jacques Villeneuve, your Greg Moore, Patrick Carpentier, Alex Tagliani, Lee, Lee Bentham, David Empreham, all these guys that came up through that program. And they literally they made a really good living doing it at that in their early twenties, you know. Um, and then by by '04, all that stuff was gone, and it was it was now on the driver to go out and find his own money, and that was really hard to do. No one knew how to do it yet for the junior categories. Um, and the the case study that Jim always brought up was Ryan Hunteray, because. You had this young, good-looking American. He'd won everything in the school series through Barber Dodge and all the rest of it. Got to Atlantic, uh, won Atlantic, and then like kind of got a couple IndyCar races, sorta. And then they kind of didn't. And yeah. then he was like, str- he was like the American dream, you know? Like, and because everyone was talking about, oh, well, open wheels failing because there's too many foreigners, you know? It's like, <laughs> no, that's not, no, that's <laughs> right. not even remotely true, right? And so, you know, Ryan, he was everything. He checked all the boxes. He had the talent. He was the looks. He was the young American, the up-and-comer. He, he had it all, and he didn't have a ride. And it's like because nobody knows who he is outside the race car. Right. 
you know, and so that that he, he you know his timing was was very unfortunate in a lot of ways. I mean, it all worked out for him. He's fine now. He's do, he's doing well. But you know, uh, he he missed that kind of tail end of the tobacco money era and was sort of in that transitional period before we figured out as an industry how to still go do this. And I guess also he naturally missed the era of social media. I would think it's a lot easier now to showcase your personality and tell people who you are given the platforms you have now versus 20 years ago. 100%. Yeah. It was kind of this dark phase in between right. 03 and call it 09-ish. Yeah. When social media hadn't really taken off yet and right. and the money was gone. And you know, and in the middle of that was 08 and the world fell apart financially. So that yeah. doesn't help. You know, yeah. frivolous expenditures like motorsports programs disappear real quick when the stock market tanks. I also think James, I mean, when I think back to 04, so like I told you, like I, I started covering that the first race, major race I ever covered was the 1996 Long Beach Grand Prix, which of course that was the year of the split was yeah. 96. Who won? Zanardi. Zanardi, yeah. Zanardi did. Uh, Zin- I, I covered it in 96, 97. No, I take that back. Vassar. Yes. 97, 98, Va- uh, Zanardi won. Yeah. And Vassar won in 96 because right. Jill DeFerrin had like a as always, the proverbial $5 part broke right. with like two laps to go, and he'd, right. he'd been on the pole and went let every lap. Anyway, <laughs> I remember back then that it was easy. I worked at a fairly small newspaper North in Southern California at the time. It was easy to talk to guys then in the cart paddock because if I think they knew that, like, hey, the world is starting to change here, and I always found them very approachable. But I think it changed a lot by '04, where I think everybody on both sides of the fence, driver-wise – both at the time IRL and Champ Car, like everybody sort of understood that like NASCAR is the big behemoth right. at the time that is starting to like really dwarf us and we need to be really accessible to media. Was, was that also maybe th- at the crossroads of you becoming a personality? Was it, I, I, were, were drivers all sort of like understanding that like, hey, we got to go out there and tell our stories in a new way? Honestly, like at that point, I was, I was still too far removed from the guys at the top level of, of our sport, of Open Wheel, mm-hmm. and... I I was brought up in that in that phase, like I said, where I was ne- I never knew a different world. It was always any media talk to them, like this is this is this is it. You have to do this. This is part of the job. You know, like you can't you don't get to do one without the other anymore. You know, we're, it's not we're, <laughs> you can't be a Kimi Raikkonen and just blow off everybody if you're in a bad <laughs> mood because you're a Kimi and it's awesome and whatever. Right. You know, like that would be cool sometimes. You know, it's just not it's not the world we live in and. Um, some guys still do that kind of stuff, and it doesn't look particularly good on them. But I honestly never knew it another way, so it, it wasn't it wasn't hard for me to kind of embrace that and kind of yeah. operate that way because that was from the minute I jumped in a race car what I what I was told to do. It doesn't look good on anybody except Kimmy. Except Kimmy, Kimmy it's kind of unfair that he can pull it off. And yeah, but I'm okay with it with him because he's just <laughs> so cool, man. I'm totally fine that he gets he gets away with that stuff. I mean, his yeah. press conferences are the best. All that being said, I feel as if. It works for you because this is this is hard. It's a hard question to ask. I'm trying to figure out a way to frame this in a way that makes sense to you because it's sort of meta. What I'm trying to ask you to get into here is that being yourself is great, but people aren't going to like everybody who are just being themselves. Like for you, there's a reason that like people also find you. I mean, I can give you a hundred reasons why I think like you're popular, and a, m- much of it is due to the fact that you're articulate, eloquent. We're we're hearing that right now. Um, do you ever think about that? Are you gifted in some way because you have a personality that where you can just be yourself? People are going to like you because of it. I think I think I'm very fortunate in that I am I'm very comfortable in this kind of setting. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's some guys that are hilarious or, or whatever. They have great personalities, whatever their traits are. But you put them in front of a crowd or in front of a camera and they freeze up and it's not them. Right. And so I, I think I'm very lucky in that sense. You know, there are a lot of guys in this paddock that whether you follow the print media, or online media, social media, whatever. And I see if I if I kind of remove what I know of them and just and just see what I read or hear online. I know that that's not the guy. I'm like, I, yeah. there's more to this person, and I wish everybody knew that because yeah. I love the guy that I know, and I yeah. and this guy's kind of meh, you know. <laughs> like, I feel like a fan would be like, nice yeah, meh. I'm, I'm, I guess, and I'm not gonna cheer against them. I'm not gonna cheer for him. And so it's, it, I'm, I'm very lucky in that sense. And my my parents speculate that that comes from the fact that I went to four different elementary schools as a kid. And so I was always the new kid. You had to be adaptable. And I had to figure out how yeah. to fit in in different groups all the time and be comfortable in front of new people and, you know, whatever. Right. Um, but I, th- I think that's the key. I think that there's a lot of a lot of guys that don't – they just don't love it and they don't – they're not comfortable in that world. And so it's it's tough for them to get across who they really are. I mean, I, I know what you're saying <laughs> about, like, looking at a driver or seeing them in, a, in an interview or some sort of situation and knowing that, like, that's that's not the guy. Like, I'm not going to name them, but I can think of some NASCAR personalities who I, – I think you see them on social media, and that's their real personality. But yeah. when they're on camera yes. and doing an interview, you're not getting who they are. 100%. And you want them to be what they are on social media, but maybe they can't really because they can't ever be comfortable when the red light's on. And there are, there are definitely cases where it becomes um, a sponsor concern. Right. Right. So like there's there's a case study here and I'll I will name them because I can, I guess, or I don't really care if there's any repercussions to this. But to me, Kyle Busch is a really fascinating case study because he is who he is. Yes. And he's not the funny, likable, jovial guy. No. He's like the angry, spiteful guy that doesn't care about anything or anyone but winning. And, And there's it's like I said, whoever you are, there's a demographic that relates to you. And there's a huge demographic that relates to the badass talented driver that doesn't give a anything about anything except winning races and how he conducts himself in interviews or press conferences or whatever they don't care about that as long as he's getting it done on the racetrack there's a group of people for that the the thing that i have seen um on this side of things at least and there's a couple friends of mine that i've, I've definitely seen be victim of this is they're so terrified of offending a sponsor that they'll they'll just they'll be that super they'll live in that PR box you know be that super buttoned up super PC they won't be their own personality they won't say their their true feelings all the rest of it because if someone at that company doesn't like what you say and they take that check away I'm out of a ride and my life's over obviously Kyle doesn't have that concern he's got very good support from his sponsors and that's awesome it's great that there are companies that are just like we know what he's like that's our guy we're behind him 100% but there was definitely a period over on this side when, when things were so fragile from a sponsorship point of view that like you wouldn't step outside the box at all because just purely out of fear of losing your ride. Which is a shame. It's a, it's, it's, it's a better huge if we can just all be ourselves. It's better for the fans. It's <laughs> yeah. better. It ultimately, it's better for the sponsors because they're going to get you know a driver that people connect with, whether it's... I mean, there are as many people that love to hate Kyle Busch as there are that love to love Absolutely. Kyle Busch. And that's awesome. For us, Like I, I on our side, I look, I'm like, we need one of those. Yes. We don't have that guy over here. Hey, Kyle, you want to come race IndyCar? <laughs> that would be awesome. Because he, I mean, he's talented enough to do it. I'll tell you this: after talking to him after the All Star race, he he might want to. <laughs> he might be looking at his opposition. <laughs> if SBM has a ride next year, you might want to see. If hey, you man! Can, his brother came over and did a killer <laughs> job. You know, I've raced against both of them at the race of champions. They're both massively talented racing drivers. Yeah. I think Kyle would do a great job if he came over. It would be fun. It'd be cool. In all seriousness, I will say, 
very perceptive of you to, to notice that about Kyle, and I will give him a ton of credit. Like, he's figured out that I don't care if people hate me. 100%. There's a need for a black hat, and I'm going to play that. And, I mean, I'm not – I don't want to, like, cast Kyle Busch as some bad guy because no. he's not. He's no. a good person. But, like, when he's at the racetrack – all he cares about is winning. It's 100%. <laughs> and he doesn't care if he makes people mad by ascribing to that all the time, which is good for him. It's and good. It, oh man, I love it. I, I, I admire what he's able to do in yeah. a lot of ways. You know, It's just what, it's one it's one way of doing it. You know? Yeah. So and IndyCar could use a, a black hat. We, in a way. IndyCar could definitely use you know the, the villain character. Is there anybody on the horizon? No. I don't know, man. <laughs> It's tough. We generally all get along so well, and it's like <laughs> that's a problem in NASCAR too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like you, you know, we used, we're sitting here in the bus lot, and we're looking across at this little mini circus of a community that we go to a town, we build a show, we perform for four days, we tear it down, we go to the next show. Like we are a traveling circus, and we spend nights in the bus lot. And I'm uncle to like 14 kids, <laughs> you know, within within this 500 foot radius, and yeah. it's uh, it's just it is what it is. This is this is your family. There's a lot of parallels here to NASCAR. I mean, I always joke that like the bus lot there, you could it's like almost like there's hermetically sealed bubbles yeah. around it during the course <laughs> of a weekend. And I'm not saying they never leave because some of them do, but now all of them are parents for the most part. Yeah. It's like almost like a little subdivision for sure. Yeah. <laughs> when Hinchtown started, it was just you. You didn't have like some master branding strategy or plan it was just i'm turning on my video recorder i'm just going to be myself basically yeah it was just kind of whenever you had something to say just record it just say it yeah. see what happens and it's funny because like i mean I, again i wish i'd had i wish i'd had the foresight because people responded really well to them and i look back at some of the videos that i made i'm like oh my i, I just cringe like, you are <laughs> such an idiot what are, you put that in, in front of people on the internet and it's still there yeah the internet's um, forever, James. I yeah, really it's, no, I didn't. I didn't really <laughs> appreciate that back then. I've learned that now, but uh, but yeah, no, it's it's one of those things. It just kind of just kind of happened. And it really helped. It really helped grow the whole you know Hinchtown thing. How has it changed with um, with Alex and what you guys are doing with with that podcast? Is it completely different? No, I mean, what's again? What's uh, part of the reason that that even came about and why I think it works is Alex and I kind of sat, you know, we have this segment on the show called Grinds My Gears, very unoriginal name, but, you know, yeah. self-explanatory. And it literally it literally came about because we would just sit there and argue about stuff. And, and you know, Alex is a very intelligent guy and we have some differing views on some things. We, just, we would just sit there and have, like, <laughs> constructive but entertaining arguments and our producer, Tim, was like, yeah, no, this is it. Like, that's the yeah. show. Like, you got your guests, but then that's the other half of the show, which is you guys having these quasi-intelligent conversations. <laughs> about. We get off track quite a bit. But, uh, but no, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's great, and we've, we've brought in a lot of really cool guests that have kind of helped expand our audience a little bit, which is, you know, what's the name of the game? First, I should just apologize and that I'm remiss and that I haven't heard the podcast. No problem. I've had the mayor on air on my iPhone for more than a year <laughs> and I still haven't listened to like the five or six episodes I downloaded which is terrible all good just go straight to off track you're good okay I'll just go to off track you guys made a little bit of news th this week you guys discussed the Indy 500 and whether it should pay points right? yeah yeah and was that interesting because I saw some headlines obviously I'm, I'm parachuting in as a NASCAR guy primarily but that that made some waves yeah it's funny it's funny and I I know I still haven't 
there's still some media lessons for me to learn, <laughs> to be sure. <laughs> you know, I, I look at us doing our podcasts and think there's like, you know, 25 people that right. are, not, are IndyCar fans. Dude, I do the same thing. Over. I feel like I'm just shouting it in the wilderness. Right, no, yeah. No one's hearing right. this. Right. <laughs> and so, and then all of a sudden, like the next day, there's like newspaper articles <laughs> with, you know, Hinchcliffe said this. I'm like, I don't even know who you are. I didn't talk to you about this. I'm like, oh, he's in the pot. Right. People, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I'm getting it. That's on the record right. when, I'm, when I'm broadcasting. And like, but what's, what's, what's frustrating, you know, and this is, this is the part that I still have to get a bit of a grasp on and, and learn how to control better is they can just, they can just take the transcript of the podcast and cut whatever sentence out sure. they want and make that the headline. There's no tone. There's no explanation. There's no background. And it, and it just totally dilutes the actual message, you know? Um, I, I'm, I, I didn't sit here and a stomp my feet that we didn't qualify and say, well, this race shouldn't pay points. Right. I was like, no, no, in the future, and in the future, I didn't say this race must be a, an exhibition right. race. I said, here's an idea. Right. You know, just we're just spitballing, guys. I mean, I'm not, I'm not right. in charge. I don't, you know, it is what it is. I'll, I'll play to the rules, whatever the rules end up being. But here are some reasons why maybe we should consider this option. And totally open to discussion and, and interpretation and whatever. But yeah. I wasn't just sitting there, like, trying to throw my toys out the pram, being like, nobody should get points on Sunday because I don't get any points. Right. Everybody's going to seize upon that, of course, without yeah. the full context, like you're saying. So For every sure. headline is, Hinchcliffe of sales. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's a travesty. Did you have that opinion, though, before last no, weekend? I, I did, yeah. yeah. So I've, I've always been staunchly against double points. I think double points is a silly idea. I, mean, I know why we originally did it at the end of the year. We've never needed it. Our championship was never over before the last race. Like, in the, I don't think since I've been in IndyCar, right. eight years now, that's the championship gone, been been sealed before the last race. And, and you know, I think the last time it was even close was maybe '08 when Dixon had like an incredible season and pretty much just had to start the last race. But still, like you know, it was still a race to the end against Elio, I think, and. Uh, so I just I just don't think they're necessary, um, and then adding it to this one I don't I just here's the thing, and this is this is part of where the idea of it being I, I won't call it an all star race because people just they just make that they compare it too much to the, to the NASCAR all star race right. and it's, it's a very different thing yeah. I understand uh, that. it's not an exhibition at all no obviously. it's it's <laughs> the, it's the Super Bowl like yes. it's you know this is the ultimate prize yes. and and the uh, I love the fact that it's thirty three cars and I love like I was supporting the fact that only the fastest 33 should start. So, like, even under my regime, I would not be running the race on Sunday. Like, I'm, you, right. yes, I'm okay with that. Yes. Um, but here's the thing, especially in a double point situation, you do get these these drivers that are coming out as a one-off, right? So they're going for Indy glory. They have no championship to consider. They have no sponsor partners to consider past Memorial Day Sunday. And your season, so, so these guys are just, they're driving for, the the glory and they're driving for the money right so yeah you're going to take more risks because you have essentially nothing to lose so if as a full-time driver who's competing for a championship you get taken out by somebody that makes a bolder than you would move because they have nothing to lose that doesn't seem super fair especially in a double point situation you know so that's that's kind of it, it came about last year. We were taken out of the race. We were running top ten with fifteen laps to go, and two part-time drivers got together and took out half of the top ten, and well, full-time guys that had championships to worry about. And that's that's like DNFing two races, which is a death sentence in our championship. So I'm all. I mean, th this is the greatest race in the world. This is the biggest prize money check in the world. This is the glory. Like, the, your face goes on a trophy for the rest of time. Like, <laughs> you're going to die, and it's still going to be there. Yeah. You know? Your great-grandkids can go see your face on that trophy one day. This is everything. 
And so I think let's let's just make it about that. Let's make it about Indy. Again, this is just an idea. I don't actually expect this to happen because <laughs> it's been part of the championship for too long now. But there was just there there was enough. I, I, I sitting there thinking about it again before what happened last weekend. Um, it was more after what happened last year. I just thought about a lot of things. Like I said, there's ten times more practice than there is any other race. There's two days of qualifying rather than ninety minutes of qualifying. There's thirty three cars instead of twenty three. There's so many differences right. to this race that maybe it's okay to not really have it. Everyone's still going to come. You know, no one's going to be like, oh, if I'm not going to points, I'm not going to the Indy 500. I mean, obviously that's not a concern. So what's the harm in not paying points, I guess? As, as someone that just loves a good debate, tell me why that's bad. You've convinced me. Uh, just just with the argument about how it's different and that you have... I mean, how many full-time cars are there in IndyCar? Like 20? Low 20s? Tw- yeah, 22, 23 this year. So you year? essentially have like a third of the field right. isn't somebody you're going to be competing against for the championship. I'm sure, to put it in NASCAR terms, I mean, there's 36 charters. If they started Daytona and they had, well, we're just going to open it up to 55 or 60 cars this year. Right. And sometimes there are wrecks at Daytona. Uh, <laughs> what? Yeah. I've never seen one. <laughs> like, that could really affect things. So um, what you're saying there makes perfect sense. And especially about, like, this is where people probably miss it. What you're saying is it's more about the race than qualifying. It's more about what happens during the course of 500 miles that can affect your championship hopes. For sure. Like, Forget about so making it or not. Yeah, my, my championship takes a hit because of me, because right. we didn't make the show 100%. Right. But last year, our championship took a hit because somebody else that doesn't run full-time and maybe wasn't as you know, up to speed. Maybe the racecraft was a bit rusty if they hadn't raced in a while. I don't know. Sure. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying these sure. are things that could happen with part-timers or, one, you know, one-offs. And in an effect, you know, like the amount of money and time and effort that we spend towards a championship in this series for it to take that significant a blow because one guy was going for glory, which is totally their prerogative, and that's fine. And I, I get it. I endorse that. Like Takuma's move a couple years ago on Dario, you know, everyone was like, that was last lap leading 500. Hell yeah, he had to try that move. Right. You know, was it right. a very low percentage move? Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. But he, you know, yeah, he had to. Yeah. If that had been a part-time guy and Dario had crashed and his championship was ruined, like, is that is that That's fair? That's not fair. You know what I mean? You wouldn't, you shouldn't judge him any more than you judge Sato, who's running for the championship, and he's not going to care if that exactly. those points matter at the end of the year. Exactly, it's the Indy 500. Just an idea to float. I like it. You raised another point that I hadn't. That I've thought of before and haven't had a chance to really ask somebody. Obviously, I cover a series that has a playoff. Yes. IndyCar does not. No. And yet, every year, it comes down to the season finale. And as you said, James, often by very few points. Any reason for that? Is it just it's just that competitive here? I th- I think it's I think it's twofold. I think yes, the the competition is incredibly tight. But I believe the same is true in Cup. Uh, I think the difference is the length of the schedule. The playoff format came because. Kenseth won the championship right. with one win versus, like, I think Ryan had, like, eight Newman wins had eight or wins something. Yep. Um, but had, obviously, a, a bunch of bad races in between there. With a 36-race schedule, you can motor through top fives all season long, and as long as a guy has a bit of bad luck, you know, I guess, a, like, a good team has more time to build up a cushion, right? Where with only 17 races and, you know, 50 points for a win, 40 for a second, and, you know, the way the point system works out, it's really hard to build up a 50-point advantage because, A, it's really tight competition, and, B, like, if, if you're gaining, you know, two or three points a race, you're not going to get there by the, by one race to go, you know? So I honestly think the length of the championship is what kind of led to the need for that. That's a good point. I wonder if diversity of schedule has something to do with it, too, now that I'm hearing you talk about it, that you guys 
what, seven ovals, however many street courses, yeah. road courses, whereas yeah. NASCAR is 34 ovals, which is probably a little bit different in terms of uh, skill sets and everything. How's the week been? You seem like you're in good spirits. I know you had a busy morning. Things going well? Yeah, it's uh, it's been an up and down week, Nate, <laughs> if I'm honest with you. <laughs> it's, say uh, the least. It's been a bit of an emotional <laughs> roller coaster. Um, you have good, you know... <laughs> The, the term good days and bad days doesn't even apply. You have good hours and bad hours. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> and, I'm catching uh, you on a good one. This is a good one. This is a good <laughs> okay, I very yeah. much enjoyed our chat. Um, okay. No, it's, I, the busier I'm keeping myself, the better I'm feeling. You know, yes. like uh, there was there were times where, I, you know, you have that, that little driver tantrum in your head. And you're like, well, I don't want to do any of this stuff because I'm in a bad mood and blah, blah, blah. But it's the more I did stuff, the, the more it kind of like. A, talking about it help get, helps you get over it. Um, and staying busy just kind of takes your mind off it a little bit. Sunday's probably going to suck. There's no way around that. Uh, yeah. The start of the race is really going to suck. Absolutely. Uh, then when I see how hard it is out there, I might I might think it sucks a little less. But yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, it's yeah, it's it's been great. And honestly, the fan support has just been it's just been completely overwhelming. Yeah. It's just been incredible. That's so. got to be therapeutic on some level. It, on some level, for sure. I mean, it's. Yeah. Uh, the, honestly, one of the hardest parts, man, was was just just being back with the crew, like right afterwards, getting back to the garage and like a, seeing a group of like ten grown men literally brought to tears over what's just happened. You know, right. like it just it shows you how much this race means. Yeah. You know, if we had like a really bad crash in qualifying at Detroit on Saturday morning and didn't couldn't get the car fixed in time for Sunday, we'd all be like, man, that really sucks. All right, we'll fix the car and we'll come back next week. But like not getting to start Indy, man, is just it's such a gut punch for these guys, for all of us. And but at the same time, I think it brought us closer as a group. And uh, we're deaf. There's there were mistakes made that we're definitely going to learn from. There's no doubt that we come back as a stronger unit because of this, uh, emotionally, from a preparation point of view, from an execution point of view. So, you know, like I said. It, it actually wasn't the worst day I've ever had at the Indianapolis Motor Yeah, Speedway. believe it or not. <laughs> three years ago, it might have been worse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we, you know, and that brought us closer together, and that made us stronger as a group. And so I think this is just going to have the same effect. Did the pit stop competition yesterday finishing second, did that help alleviate some of it as well? It did. And yeah. it's it's funny. Like, for, for I, don't, I assume not a lot of people closely follow the history of the pit stop competition at the Indianapolis Motor <laughs> Speedway. But Plead guilty, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so the, the way it's set up, there's definitely one lane that has an insane advantage, right. right? And I think in the last three years, no one's won even a round from the, from the right lane. And all, all the winning comes from the left lane. And in the semifinals, so in the finals last year, I was against Will Power and Team Penske, and Penske's won it like 17 times. In the semifinals this year, we were up against Will, and he had lane selection, so he had the good lanes. So it was like, all right, we made it to the semis, whatever. And we actually beat him from the right lane. And so we beat, like, the defending champions, the 17-time champions, with a disadvantage of being in the wrong lane. That one, uh, even if we had won the thing overall, if we had beat Dix in the finals, I don't think it would have felt as good as that win did. So, like, the guys were, it was just, it was such an awesome performance. And the guys have been killing in the past. We've already won Fast Pit Award twice this season. Um, and, and the six-car won it one other time. So three out of five races, SPMs had the fastest pit crew. So it's definitely a point of pride for us, and it was fun to at least get back in the car and, you know, do something for the fans and do something for the boys, and we want to check at the end of the day. So add it to the beer fund, and, you know, <laughs> we'll go have, a, go have a fun Sunday night. That's cool, man. Well, I still know that tomorrow will be tough. I'm a little bit jealous, not to make light of this situation, but I'm going to have to pay attention to the race. I kind of want to go to turn three or whatever <laughs> the snake pit <laughs> i want to see this edm thing yeah i um, mean uh, will you wander out there perhaps or that's probably going to be beyond me <laughs> tomorrow if <laughs> okay, i'm honest fair yeah enough. although i'll tell you what though 
So I've heard, I've heard all these stories, like from way back when until present day, about what it's like just outside the speedway on Saturday night before the race. You know, yeah. up Georgetown, which is now a pedestrian-only street, across the street in the Coke lot. You hear all these crazy stories of these crazy parties and all the rest of it. And obviously, we're always isolated in our little bubble inside the speedway in the driver's lot. Part of me is tempted to, like, dress up in disguise and just venture out there and see for myself what it's all about. <laughs> you should do it. So I'm, I'm very tempted to do that and maybe document some of my uh, some of the exploits out there. You can vlog it or something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's old school, man. Throw them back. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm tempted to maybe do that. I know the cannon's going to go off at 6 a.m. and wake us up, but I have a few you know, I have fewer responsibilities tomorrow <laughs> than most of my colleagues. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, take advantage of that if you can. I hope that your day goes well tomorrow. I really appreciate you taking time. Thank you so much. I have a busy schedule. Really enjoyed this. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, man. The NASCAR NBC podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating or review. That really helps us out. And if you have any feedback, as always, send me on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.